be seated. Oh, he is worthy. We could just keep singing for hours. Thank you so much. Brothers and sisters, thank you. Well, go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. The year was 1555, nearly 40 years after Martin Luther had nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, effectively beginning the Protestant Reformation. Nearly 20 years after Calvin had written the first edition of his Institutes in Latin. The church in England was under fire in 1555. Literally, uh, people were going to start burning at the stake from uh, Queen Mary. You know her reign of terror in England. Over the next four years, 288 people would be burned at the stake for their Protestant faith. Men, women, even children. And J.C. Ryle said that the first to break the ice and to cross the river as a martyr in Mary's reign was John Rogers. John Rogers was the first person to be killed by Queen Mary. Who is this individual? John Rogers received his education at Cambridge. He became a Catholic priest. And while becoming disillusioned about the Catholic teachings, he went to Holland and just so happened to meet a man by the name of William Tyndale. Tyndale taught Rogers the Bible and the gospel of salvation by faith alone and the finished work of Christ alone. And Rogers got saved. When Tyndale was arrested months later, he left his Old Testament manuscript that he had been working on to compile an English translation of the Bible. He left them with uh, John Rogers. And John Rogers uh, finished the translation work and under the name Thomas Matthew completed what is known as the Matthew's Bible. It is the first Bible ever produced in English. Rogers pastored in Germany, but his heart was for his people back home in England. So he returned in 1548 with his wife and at that time eight kids. He preached, he pastored safely under the reign of King Edward VI. And then when Mary proclaimed herself king, Rogers knew exactly what she stood for and knew it was not good. Queen Mary arrived in London on Thursday, August 3rd, 1553, and Rogers was appointed to preach the next Sunday, and he boldly proclaimed the gospel of salvation with all of those solas, right? The uh, glory of God alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, all of those different solas. Rogers' sermon that day would be his last. He was placed under house arrest a week later. And at that point, he had his wife and 10 children with another on the way. Six months after that, he was put into prison where he lived for the next year, which led to January 1555, where he was examined and condemned for standing against the Church of Rome and for saying that the sacrament of communion did not contain the actual body and blood of Christ. He requested to be able to speak to his wife and his kids before he was killed, and his request was denied. The next day, he was led outside into the streets. He walked in the shadow of the church where he had preached. Thousands of spectators lined the way, and in the sea of faces, he saw his wife holding his newborn child that he had never met. John Fox says in his Book of Martyrs that Rogers walked calmly to the stake where he would be burned for his faith. And he recited the whole way over and over and over again, Psalm 51. He recited Psalm 51 over and over again. When he arrived at the stake, the sheriff gave him one last chance to recant. And he said, quote, that which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. The fire was set ablaze, his body began to burn, and the thousands who were in the crowd began to applaud and cheer on their pastor, knowing that he had given his life for the gospel. Days later, others would face the same fate. Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, who were burned at the stake together, back to back. And Latimer said to his friend who was in anguish, be of good comfort, play the man, for this day... We shall light a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. 
How did Rogers go to the stake and burn for his faith? Even before Rogers, there were thousands upon thousands, hundreds of thousands who lost their life because of their love for Christ. Even to this very day, at this very moment, there are people around the world in fear for losing their lives because of their love for Jesus. So my question is, why? Why are they so happy to die for Jesus? What are they giving their life for? And how does their testimony impact us today? I believe the passage before us will enable us to ask those questions and then answer them biblically. So Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Father, we come before you and we ask for your grace. We need preparation for the suffering that is inevitably going to come. Our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing it right now. We aren't, but we know that the word of God says we will. Even in this room, even in our church, there may be those who will be called by you to give their lives for the word of God and the testimony that they would maintain. And Father, we need strength for that moment. You will give us mercy and grace in that moment to do that. But right now, Father, I pray that you would begin working in our hearts to gird up our souls for the days ahead. And the only way that we will go gladly to our deaths for Jesus is if we consider him better than our lives. And so, Father, we pray every Sunday, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Open our eyes to see Christ as worthy. As we sung already this morning, we want to see Christ as worthy. Because only when we do will we be able to go to our deaths singing his praises. So, Father, help us, encourage us. Speak to us according to your word, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. This fifth seal is different than the first four that we looked at last week. If you weren't here last week, we looked at these first four seals. We are in the book of Revelation. We're in the end times. This is the ending of all of human history. And those first four seals, commonly known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, we looked at those four. This fifth seal, uh, we're only going to look at this one today. This fifth seal is different than the first four. There's no summons from a living being. There's no horse. There's no rider. It's also different from the sixth seal. When we get to the sixth seal, Lord willing, next week, uh, you're going to see the vast upheavals in the entire cosmic universe. Uh, if you think that styrofoam is bad for the planet, wait until you get to seal number six because it is devastation like we've never seen before. So this seal kind of sandwiches itself between those four and that sixth, and it's different. And right off the bat, we see it's all about martyrs. It's all about those who would gladly, willingly give their lives for Christ. And so some people say that the fifth seal is martyrdom. But I don't think that that is the fifth seal because remember, these are all a picture of God's judgment being given on the world. He is the one opening the seal. He is the one sending these messengers of divine destruction. And so this isn't judgment in the sense of us believers being judged. We just read it this morning, right? First Thessalonians tells us we are going to be spared from the wrath of God. We are not destined to experience the wrath of God. We will experience the wrath of men, and they will kill us, and they will give our bodies to destruction because they hate the Christ that we stand for. But martyrdom is not the judgment here. 
because that would be God judging us, killing us. That's not what's happening here. The judgment here is actually very easy to see. It's the prayer that the martyrs are praying and God answering that prayer through the sixth seal. God, how long until you bring judgment on the earth? And God says, it's only a little while longer. Wait, but my answer to that question, to that prayer that you're praying, my answer is the judgment that I'm going to bring on the world. That's the judgment in seal number five. Remember, we looked at last week, the seals are coming, they're future, and they're chronological. So seal one, two, three, four happened, then seal five happened. So this is it, martyrs over the whole host of Christian history, of church history. This is martyrs that are living inside of that 70th week of Daniel, those last seven years before Christ comes back. It's future, it's yet to come. So just really briefly, I want to examine each verse. There's three verses and there's three main P's that I'm going to give you that you can kind of hang your hat on and we'll explain this and then I want to apply it. So what from this text? So number one, let's look at the people. Number one, verse nine, let's look at the people. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. So they're killed during that seven year period. They're killed during that Daniel's 70th week that we looked at just briefly last week. And we know that they are not the raptured individuals because when you and I are raptured, as 1 Thessalonians talks about, we are raptured and given glorified bodies instantly. It's not killed. If you are killed for, for Christ, your body goes into the ground and your soul is taken into heaven and you await the resurrection of your body being put back, your soul being put back in your body and you're given a glorified body. If you're raptured, you're given a glorified body instantly. So these individuals, John sees souls. They're not raptured individuals. They're martyred individuals. And I believe that they're martyred during that seven-year period of time. They're under the altar. That means that their deaths are considered a sacrificial offering to the Lord. This is a heavenly altar in the throne room of God. And the martyrs have offered themselves to God. They have... No bodies. They're given a symbolic gift that it's a robe that they will put on. But right now they are bodiless. And they have been slain. Verse 9 says they were slain. That's the same word that's used to speak of seal two of, of individuals slaying other individuals. Whether it's through war or through the murder of other individuals on an individual basis. So seal two and seal four are bringing about this martyrdom. There's death for believers at a catastrophic level. Number two, not only do we see the people, we see their prayer. Number two, their prayer, verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? Literally, my Bible says they cried out with a loud voice. It's literally they screamed. This is a passionate outcry. And they're crying out, how long will you keep refraining from judging those who dwell on the earth? Those who dwell on the earth. That's a a phrase we're going to see over and over again in Revelation. It just means non-believers. It's those who are avowed opponents of God and his people. So, God, how long until you judge them, until you avenge our blood, until you bring judgment on the world? Notice what their prayer is. What are they asking God to do? It's explicit. They are asking God to avenge their blood. Why are they asking God to do this? Notice, number one, it's not a command. It's not, God, you need to do this now. It's a question, how long will you wait? But notice what they say about God. They say, you are holy and you are true. You are holy and you are true. That's the very reason why they're asking this request, why they're bringing this petition to the Lord. You're holy, and yet you're allowing wickedness and evil to exist. You are true, and you said that you won't allow evil and wickedness to exist, and yet you're allowing it to exist. So the question is, until you do bring judgment, your honor is in question. The the world can look around right now and say, is there a God? We studied this in Psalm 73. Is there a God? The wicked are prospering. The righteous are dying. Is there really a God? God's honor, his, his claims about himself, who he is and his people, it's all up for grabs. It's in question right now. And so the martyrs say, show the world who you are. 
That's the plea. Now, some people would ask, is it wrong to ask for judgment to be brought on wicked people? Is it wrong? And I, I believe that this question, this prayer that they are praying is not wrong for two reasons. Number one, they're just asking God to do what he promised he would do. They're not asking God to do some new thing. God said that this is what he would do. Wickedness will not reign. Righteousness will reign. And so they're just saying, how long until righteousness reigns? So this is not a bad petition. Secondly, we know that it's not a sinful request because they're in heaven. They're in heaven. They're, they're glorified. They do not have sin staining their thoughts, making their flesh cry out with fleshly sinful passions. No, these are holy people, sinless people. We looked at this, uh, we studied this for a while when we were studying the book of Habakkuk, which you can find that on our website, on our YouTube channel. You can look at those sermons. We looked at these laments. The two main questions in laments are how long and why? And we, we stopped and we talked about that for a long time. Those two requests, very common questions that are asked constantly. I think that they could be asked in a sinful way, but I think that's very rare. And I think one proof that I can give that they can be asked in a very holy way is these sinless saints in heaven are asking this question, how long? So that's not a wrong question to ask. And then Jesus on the cross, he asked, why have you forsaken me? That's not a wrong question to ask. So I don't think that these questions are wrong at all. These petitions that these martyrs are making, we actually see these kinds of questions in Psalm chapter 94, verses 1 through 7. If we had more time, we'd turn there. But just write down Psalm 94, 1 through 7, and also verse 29 at the end of that chapter. Psalm 94 is a psalm, we covered a little bit of it in Psalm 56, that imprecatory prayer where God uh, is being asked by the psalmist to bring divine vengeance on the world. There's a longing for judgment, and it's a legitimate longing. I don't think that we don't understand this because we're not smart enough. I think we don't understand how this is a legitimate longing for judgment to come because we're not righteous enough. Once we get in heaven, we'll finally understand, oh, that's why they're asking that question right now. Is, is this okay? Are we loving our enemies the way we're supposed to? When we get to heaven and we understand the offense against a holy God that all of us have been doing, we're going to say the exact same thing. How long are you going to let this go? God, how long? And as I said earlier, their prayer is answered by the sixth seal. It's not very long. Wait. It's another reason why I believe that these martyrs were martyred during that seven-year period of time in the end times. Because they're saying, you have not judged them yet. We're dead, but they're still out there. And God says, wait a little while longer, and I will bring them judgment. Meaning, if these are martyred souls that have been martyred in church history past, thousands of years ago, their martyrs, their, their persecutors, the, those that killed them, they're already receiving this judgment. So this question wouldn't make sense if we're talking about church history saints, uh, old-time church history saints in the past. This question wouldn't make sense because judgment's already happened. Right now, these souls are saying, we were just killed, our persecutors are still alive, how long until judgment comes? By the way, you and I pray this prayer all the time. We don't pray it using these words, but we pray this prayer all the time. Do you know the prayer that we pray that's exactly like this? Your kingdom come. Right? When we pray your kingdom come, we're praying, God, bring righteousness to the earth. Establish your kingdom in peace and righteousness that the glory of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We want that now. And when we're praying for that, the only way that that is possible is if all of evil is destroyed. So it's the exact same prayer, just worded differently. So we see, number one, a people. Number two, their prayer. And finally, number three in verse 11, a promise. A promise. We see a people, prayer, and a promise. Verse 11, there was given to each of them, after they give this petition, a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. A promise. There are two things that are given to these martyrs. Number one, a symbolic gift, and number two, a spoken word. 
a symbolic gift. A white robe is given. It represents complete cleansing, being covered by somebody else's righteousness. You're safe. You're secure. God is saying you are secure in heaven. You don't have to work. You don't have to do anything to get here. Just believe in the work of Jesus Christ. Number two, a spoken word is, is given to these martyrs. This is the heavenly response of predetermined purpose. Wait a little while longer. Rest for a little while. Enjoy your Sabbath rest now because that time is coming. You're here. You're safe. That's what God is saying. You're here. You're home. You're safe. Enjoy the rest. Notice, I think this is staggering to think about. These saints are in heaven and they're unable to rest well. They're struggling. They need God to say, it's okay, you can rest. Why? Because they know them being in heaven isn't the end of the story. The end of the story is God bringing righteousness in all of the world. God bringing final, ultimate righteousness and holiness so that his glory would be seen and savored by every individual. The end of human history is that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some will do that on their own and some will be forced to do that. But here these saints, though they are in heaven, though they are safe and secure and home, they're still struggling. There's, there's a lack of rest such that God needs to tell them, it's okay, you can rest. And the reason why is because they're, they're longing for God to bring final, ultimate, the, the finish, the end of the story to all of human history. God says, I'm going to do that. You can rest. It will happen. But it's not happening yet. And he does not give them a predetermined time he gives them a predetermined number. This will happen when? The end of human history, the judgment that God's going to bring on the world, uh, the, the final, ultimate uh, glory of God being revealed by his heavenly kingdom coming and ruling and reigning on earth. When will it happen? Not a time frame. God gives them a number. And it's a number of martyrs that still have yet to die. Final judgment will come. You can rest confidently in that but only after a predetermined number of brothers and sisters will be killed for the gospel. This is why we ask, God, why are you waiting? Seems like you're slow. This is what Peter says, right? Seems like you're slow to, to keep your promises. And what's Peter's answer to that? No, God's not slow as we would count slowness. He's waiting so that people would come to saving faith in him. He's waiting so that people would repent and turn to Christ. There's a reason that our suffering continues, and it's so that more people can be saved. If God heard, back in Psalm 94, if God heard the plea of the psalmist for vengeance to be brought on the world and all evil to be destroyed, if God heard that prayer and he answered it with yes, you and I would not be here and would not be saved. So God waits, and he waits. And he waits until a predetermined number of his own children will be killed for their faith, and then he brings judgment. So one commentator sums this whole passage up by saying, the word to the souls under the altar gives them reassurance that God will eventually avenge their blood, but the time for the culmination of that vengeance has not yet arrived. One feature that must yet transpire beforehand is the increase of their number though additional through additional martyrdom. The earth dwellers under the dawning leadership of the beast from the sea will take an even greater toll of human lives before Christ finally intervenes through his personal arrival back on earth. And until then, the already martyred are told to rest and enjoy their state of blessedness already attained. So, people, prayer, and the promise that God gives. So my question is, what are we to learn from these martyrs? Why did they die and how should we live? Why did they die and how should we live? Two questions we're going to spend the rest of our time asking and answering. Question number one, why did they die? Why were they killed? It tells us explicitly they were slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. They did not give up their testimony. They did not relinquish their faith in Christ. They did not stop speaking about the gospel. What is it that they cherished most? What is it about the gospel that would lead them to be willing to die? If you go back to John Rogers, you remember John Rogers at the beginning of our 
time this morning, burned at the stake by Queen Mary, and he went to the stake reciting as he went Psalm 51. Turn there just briefly, Psalm 51. I want you to see what he believed, and I, I think what you and I hold dear and precious in our own lives, and what the martyrs in Revelation 6 hold on to, that will enable them to die for Christ. Psalm 51, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, because I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and you are blameless when you judge. This psalm was on the tongues of most of those Reformation martyrs. The most often quoted psalm of the Reformation martyrs, those 288 people that died for their faith in the reign of Queen Mary, this was the psalm that they quoted most often. Why? I think it gives us three fundamental truths that enable us to hold the testimony and maintain the testimony just like John Rogers, and just like the martyrs in Revelation 6. Number one, John Rogers, the martyrs in Revelation 6, in order, remember, we're asking the question, why did they die? They died because they believed three things about God. They believed three things about themselves. They believed three things about the gospel. Number one, they believed that their sin deserved judgment. This is why they're willing to go to a martyr's death. Number one, they believe that their sin deserves judgment. We read it in Psalm 51. That's why John Rogers is quoting this as he's going to be killed. He knows that he is sinful and he has guilt and he has shame. He's not perfect and his sin deserves judgment. Breaking a law. You will, if you break a law, something bad will be given to you as a consequence. If you get a speeding ticket, you'll have to pay a fine. You'll have to pay the ticket. You might have to go to some form of driver's ed. Sin demands judgment. And so the question is, is God just, is he right in punishing us the way he does? If I speed on the freeway, I get a ticket, there's a fine, I pay the fine, I'm done. There's a question that I often get as a pastor regarding the doctrine of God's punishment for our sins. The Bible says explicitly that the punishment for our sins is not only physical death, but it's eternal death. It's separation from God forever in hell. Conscious, you're aware, you're awake, it's eternal, it never ends, and it is torment and torture. And some people say, that's not fair. That's not fair, because I, I only sinned for 70 or 80 years in this life, so I should deserve 70 or 80 years of judgment. There's a number of answers to that. One that I just heard again this last week that I think is so helpful to understand why the judgment that we deserve is so important to understand that it's just of God. So you, you have your car keys and you go to a rock that's outside in the planter and you take that car key and you key the rock, right? You scratch the rock. Does anybody care what you just did? <laughs> no one does, right? They just look at you and think you're weird for scratching a rock with your car key. You take those same keys and you go to a junkyard. And you scratch the side of a car that's been smushed by that huge machine. It's just like a little cube and you scratch the side of it. Does anybody care that you scratch the side of a junked car? Not really. I mean, maybe there's some guy that's going to say, hey, why are you here? What are you doing? You're crazy. If you scratch my car with your keys, I'm going to go, hey, why'd you do that? But that's about it, because my kids have done worse. <laughs> You're okay. But if you go to a Lamborghini dealership, and you take your car keys and you key the side of a Lamborghini, never been driven in, hasn't been sold yet, you know that the response is going to be really, really bad. Now, you've done the exact same thing the entire way through. You're just keying something. 
But see, the punishment doesn't just fit the crime. The punishment fits who the crime was against. And so if we, in our sin, heed the holiness of an infinite God, then our punishment will be infinite. It matches. It fits. It makes total sense. So why can martyrs go to their death willingly, happily even, singing with joy? It's because they know that the fires that they are experiencing are nowhere near what they really deserve. Your perspective of earthly embers changes when you've been saved from an eternal inferno. If you know that your sin demands judgment, then you know what you are experiencing in a physical way here on earth, as terrible as it may be, it's nothing compared to the judgment that you do actually deserve. A second truth that drives martyrs to willingly give up their life for Christ is that they believe that their salvation is found solely in God's mercy separate from their merits. Salvation is found solely in God's mercy separate from their merits. So number one, they believe that their sin deserves judgment. Number two, they believe that salvation is possible and found only in God's work, not ours. God's mercy, not our merit. Just look at what the psalmist is praying in Psalm 51. You remember this is David writing after the sin uh, of uh, adultery with Bathsheba. He says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your mercy, your compassion, blot out my transgression. Here's what he's saying. God, make it so that it looks like I've never even sinned. You're asking a holy God to act towards you as if you've never sinned in your life. That's a crazy request. What's even crazier is that God answers that request by saying, I would gladly do that. I would gladly act and treat you as if you never sinned. How can he do that when he's a just God? He gives you his righteousness and he takes your sin upon himself. This is what we would call in theology the doctrine of imputation. That everything that is ours goes to Jesus and everything that is Christ's is given to us. So all of my sin, my shame, my guilt, the punishment that I deserve is taken from me and given to Christ. And on the cross, God the Father treats Jesus as if Jesus had sinned like I sin every single day so that I could be treated by the Father as if I lived Christ's perfect life. And his perfection, his holiness is imputed to me. His righteousness is given to me. I'm wearing that white robe, so to speak, so that the Father sees me and treats me and acts towards me as if I had never sinned in my life. Right before I got married, my bank account was very low, still is, but I remember I was working part-time, going to school part-time. My wife was working part-time, going to school part-time, and uh, we got married. And at the altar, the moment that I said, I do, and that she said, I do, that very moment, my bank account doubled just instantly. All that she had worked for, all that she, I mean, my income doubled overnight in a moment, right? It's not the reason I got married. <laughs> but in a moment, in a moment, I have a new stream of income. Did, did I do anything for it? Did I work for it? No, I, I didn't do anything. That's a, it's a silly example, but it, it, it gives us the understanding of what the gospel is. I, I don't do anything to get God's bank account given to me. I, I just, I simply say, I do. I, I love you, I, I believe you, I follow you, and everything that is his is given to me, and it's mine. So, what three truths enabled these martyrs to die the way they did. Why did they die? How did they die? We need to listen to their testimony. I would say, number one, they believed that their sin deserved judgment. Number two, they believed that salvation is found solely in God's mercy, separate from their merits. And that leads to truth number three. They, they knew that a love like this is worth losing their lives to proclaim. A love like this that God would hear your petition, Father, treat me as if I'd never sinned, and God says, yes, I will do that through Christ. His love is so amazing that it is worth losing your life to proclaim. 
washing by God leads to worship of God, which leads to witness for God. Look at verse 13. The psalmist is saying, God, forgive me. Give me grace. Give me mercy. And when you do that, verse 13, then I will teach other sinners your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Father, give me grace so that I can shout that at the rooftops to everyone around me. The, the martyrs in the time of the Reformation, the martyrs before the Reformation, the martyrs after the Reformation, the martyrs in Revelation chapter 6, they don't die because they believe the gospel. They die because they broadcast the gospel. Persecution only arises where proclamation resounds. And so as we tell, knowing that love that Christ has for us, the love that Jesus has for us is worth losing our lives for. If you stay silent, you stay safe. Speak and you might be killed. But the wondrous love that Christ has given to us is worth losing our lives for. In 1948, when communism came to China, there were about 400 to 700,000 people who were considered to be believers in various denominations. In 1983, about 40 years later, an article was written that asked, quote, when China opens up again, will there be any Christians? And when we got back into China and we were able to see, we were able to count, there were over 10 million believers. Communism tried to shut Christianity down, persecuted our uh, Chinese brothers and sisters. Believers didn't just survive in persecution. They, they were thriving in it. And now, today, it has about 80 to 100 million people. China has 80 to 100 million people who love Christ and follow him. And if you ask Chinese Christians how they go through this suffering, here's their answer, according to one Chinese pastor. They simply ask themselves every day, would I rather identify with my brothers and sisters being persecuted, or would I rather identify with their persecutors? Who do I want to identify with? My brothers and sisters being persecuted, or the persecutors? And when asked, okay, what differentiates them? What differentiates these two people groups? They said this, do you tell someone about Jesus every day? That's the difference. Do you tell somebody about Jesus every single day? If you keep your witness to yourself and you don't share it with others, you identify with the persecutors. Why? Because the persecutors want you to stay silent. So if you voluntarily stay silent, then you're saying, I'm aligning myself with the persecutors and I'm not speaking up for Christ like my brothers and sisters. So often we're told in America that religion and faith is just a personal private matter. Personal private matter. It, that's so not true. You've been given grace to share it. You've been given the gospel to speak with boldness. So do we speak? Or do we, as one author said, give up in freedom what our brothers and sisters never give up in persecution? That, by the way, is what absolutely, absolutely destroys our brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted. They can handle persecution. They can handle suffering. What absolutely destroys them is that they hear that we, who have all freedom to do whatever we want to do, we don't do it. We think that freedom is tied to political freedom. But we're as free to share Christ in Ohio as we are in Afghanistan. We can share Christ anywhere we want. The question is, do we? Countries, presidents, politics has nothing to do with this. Do you just share Christ? Do you speak of Jesus to somebody every day? God has said go, and we need to go. We need to be obedient. So, why did they die? Why were they willing to die? I think three answers. Number one, they believe their sin deserved judgment. Number two, they believe their salvation was found solely in God's mercy, separate from their merits. And number three, love like this is worth losing our lives to proclaim. So that leads me to one last question. How should we live? Why did they die? How should we live? Why did they die? Why were they willing to, happy to, glad to, joyful to? And then how should we then live? Three last answers to that question. Number one, we should expect and anticipate persecution. Though Revelation 6 deals in that final seven-year period of time before Christ comes back, we know that the world's going to get worse. There are some who would hold to the pre-trib rapture, uh, of which I would be one, 
But there are some who hold to the view that we are raptured before the seven-year period, and they hold to it hoping that if that's the case, we just we miss out on all the craziness and the chaos, and, and life is just easy for us as believers because God, God just spares us from the awful things that are to come. Let me just give you some verses to answer that. If that's your mentality here this morning, if you think I hold to a pre-trib rapture just because that means God's getting me out of here and I don't have to experience anything bad, Philippians 1, 29, you have been given a gift of suffering. John 16, 33, in this world, you will have tribulation. Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of God. Matthew 5, blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake. John 15, verse 20, if they've persecuted me, Jesus says, they're going to persecute you too. And then 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We know the world's going to get worse. We know suffering's going to get worse. And we know we are going to experience it. We expect it. We anticipate it. It's going to happen. I think a theology of death, of dying for the gospel, and of martyrdom is not a prominent feature in American, Western, contemporary Christianity. We would rightly hate and disdain the prosperity gospel that says come to Christ because he wants to give you money and riches and fame and, and health. We rightly hate that. But perhaps, if we're honest, their theologies and ideologies have invaded our thinking and our living functionally, practically, far more than we would care to admit. So only if we expect suffering, expect and anticipate persecution, only if we expect these things, Will we actively be hoping in God in preparation for those things happening? A few decades ago, there was a Russian pastor who was taken by the KGB, tortured endlessly for nine months, placed in a chair for 72 hours. If he fell out of the chair or he fell asleep, he was beaten. He was fed bread with the guard's excrement on it. He was not given water. His wife and his son were finally allowed to come visit him in prison. They came to a large open area where there were other uh, inmates who were in this prison. And they were waiting for their incarcerated loved ones to come out. Finally, after waiting for hours, the guards brought what looked like just a, a sack of rags and dropped it on a table in front of the wife and the son. And inside the blanket was the pastor completely emaciated to a place of being unrecognizable except for his piercing blue eyes. The wife and the son wept over the husband, over their dad. Towards the end of their time, the wife tried to smuggle a little Bible into his shirt so that he could have it with him in prison. A nearby guard saw it and quickly took the Bible away, beating the husband. He turned to the woman and he said, Do, don't you realize that it's because of your God and this book that all of this is happening? That your husband is here in this condition because of this book and your God. Don't you know that I can kill him, I can kill you, and I can kill your son, and I'll probably get a promotion for it? The wife looked at him and calmly said, sir, you can kill my husband. You can kill me. You can even kill my son. But you can never separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The son who was watching all of this said to his mother when they got back home, I was so proud of you, Mom. She was eight years old. Our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing that currently, at this very moment, in this very hour. We need to expect the exact same kind of persecution and suffering. There isn't the free church and the suffering church, right? It's just the church. That's why the, the Bible says that we need to remember those who are in chains as if we were in chains with them. It's just the church. These kinds of stories are abounding still today. And the accounts of the Bible, uh, the accounts outside of the Bible of martyrs for Christ, just harrowing, riveting accounts of believers gladly giving their lives for Jesus. They're still happening. 
They're going to continue to happen. You realize there are more martyrs in the last 150 years for Christ than in the last 2,000 years, all combined, put together. So anybody who thinks, oh, we'll get out of this and it'll be easy, it'll be safe, coming to Christ is not safe. So let's not live as they're all just past tense martyrs. Number two, not only do we need to expect suffering, expect and anticipate persecution, but number two, we need to compellingly share the gospel with clarity and compassion. How should we live in light of these martyrs? I think it should lead us to compellingly share the gospel. Jesus suffered to provide the gospel. We suffer to propagate the gospel. Satan's attempts to stop the church only serve to spread the church. As one author says, the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. Every time martyrdom comes and persecution comes, the church flourishes. Why? Because we have a rock-solid confidence in the gospel, whether in our living or in our dying. As we share, somebody out there is getting saved. God has more people that are his chosen people that as we share the gospel, they hear, they receive, and they come to saving faith in Christ. But to get to that, to get to resurrection, it almost always is preceded by crucifixion. As one pastor says, the unoccupied fields of the world must have their Calvary before they can have their Pentecost. And so I just want to ask us here this morning, will we be a generation of Christians who will be willing to die to reach those around the world who don't have Christ, who don't know him? Will you be willing to die for those in your neighborhood, those in your city, those in your community? We need to compellingly share the gospel. And finally, number three, we need to live each day knowing Jesus is worth it. We need to live each day knowing Jesus is worth it. We need to expect and anticipate persecution. It's coming. It's, it's going to be here. And we need to expect it. We shouldn't be surprised, right? Peter says that. Don't be surprised as if some fiery ordeal has overtaken you. You knew this was coming. Secondly, we should share. Knowing that our brothers and sisters around the world are dying for sharing Christ, we should share Christ. And finally, number three, we should live each day knowing Jesus is worth it. Just ask your heart. Is the gospel so profound to you that you're willing to lose your life because of it? That life has become secondary to you, and Christ is everything. That's the whole point of the book of Revelation, by the way. The Revelation is not simply and merely and only asking when these things are going to take place. It's not about that. It's not about the timing of these things. The point of Revelation is about why these things are taking place. And the answer is God's purposes will sovereignly be fulfilled because Jesus is worthy. He is worthy to receive the reward of his sufferings. As Paul says in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and death is gain because I get more of him. Is Jesus worth it? We sang, he's worthy. Would you be able to sing those songs? with your head about to be cut off, would you be able to sing those songs tied to a stake with a burning fire around your feet saying, yes, he's worth it, he's worthy. John Rogers, at his death, the French ambassador who was there in England said that it looked like John Rogers was walking to his wedding. He wrote back saying, it looked like he was walking to his wedding. He wasn't afraid, he was excited as he was walking to his death. Roland Taylor, another Reformation martyr, two miles away from when he was going to die, uh, from where he was going to die, the sheriff asked him how he felt. How do you feel right now? You're two miles outside of where you're going to be burned at the stake. How do you feel? And he said, God be praised, Master Sheriff. Never better. For now, I'm almost home. Never better. Could you say that in a carriage drawn by horses, taking you to a stake to be burned alive for Jesus, never better. John Bradford, when he died, he kissed the stake that he was going to be burned at, and he was burned alongside of a 19-year-old John Leith. And as the flames were lit around their feet, he turned to this 19-year-old man and said, be of good comfort, brother. 
for we will have a merry supper with the Lord this night. Christopher Love died in the 1600s. His wife said, wrote a letter to him and said, when the messenger of death comes to thee, let him not seem dreadful to thee, but look on him as a messenger that brings thee tidings of eternal life. When thou goest up to the scaffold, think of, thou, think of what thou hast said to me, that it's but a fiery chariot to carry thee to the Father's house. And when you layest down thy precious head to receive thy Father's stroke, remember what thou sayest to me, thou, that thy head was severed from thy body, yet in that moment thy soul will forever be united to thy spiritual head, the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. Helen Stark was a mom with a newborn child, and she was sentenced to be put into a sack and drowned. Her husband was also sentenced to the same death, but separate from her. He would die first, then her. She followed him to where he was to be executed. She gave him a kiss, and she said to him, Husband, rejoice, because we have lived together many joyful days. But this day in which we must die ought to be the most joyful unto us. Both because we, most, we must have joy forever. And therefore, I will not bid you good night. Because we shall meet suddenly with joy in the kingdom of heaven. She was taken to where she would be executed after her husband was drowned. She gave her child along with her newborn to her neighbors who would care for them, and then she was plunged to her death. All of these people and so many more died longing for heaven, longing to be with Jesus. And so the question before us this morning, is Jesus worth it? Is he worth your life? Is he worth the life of your wife? Is he worth the life of your children? To say that Jesus is not worth it is to waste the sacrifice of those brothers and sisters who have gone before us. But I can tell you with confident assurance that not one of our brothers and sisters who have died for Christ has ever gotten to the other side and said, Jesus isn't worth it. Not one of them. Every single one, closing their eyes in this life and opening their eyes in the next, are crying out, he's worth it. Father, we thank you so much for your word and how it is so applicable to our lives and, and absolutely penetrates the deepest part of our hearts and questions our motives and divides between the joint and the marrow and identifies what our idols might be such that we would say, maybe you're not worthy. Maybe you're not worth it. Father, I pray that even as we sing and sing such a a profound song, so fitting after asking these questions of our own hearts, following in the footsteps of these brothers and sisters, these martyrs. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts to, to get us to a place of saying you are worthy. And then even as we prepare our hearts now to partake of communion, which is a celebration of your worthiness, please work in our hearts now and help us to answer with a resounding yes. He is worthy. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.